coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. I am your host, Tyler, and I am extremely excited about today's episode because we are going to be joined here momentarily by Seth Emerson from The Athletic, who is, as far as I'm concerned, hands down the best journalist on the Georgia Beat, and he really has been for a while now. There's a lot of really good journalists on the Georgia Beat. We're lucky in that regard. But I think Seth Emerson, I, he, he is the one at the top of the heap as far as I'm concerned. And, and we're going to talk about his fantastic new book on the resurgence of the Georgia football program under Kirby Smart. And of course, while we've got him here, we've also got to get his take on this 2020 Georgia football team. And then after the interview, I'm going to stick around to answer a few more listener questions that just missed the cutoff for our August Listener Mailbag episodes last week. I feel bad because I know I told you guys you had until last Thursday evening to get those questions submitted, but we kind of had to adjust our recording schedule on the fly a little bit last week and actually ended up recording part two of the Mailbag Tuesday night as opposed to Thursday night. And and we had a few listeners sending questions after that, so I just want to do right by them and answer their questions today. And while I've got you here, I just want to take a quick moment, if you guys don't mind, to let you guys know about the new Dogs for Pups initiative that the Georgia football program has launched today. I'm sure a lot of you guys already saw this on social media. This was a program, this is a program that's spearheaded by the athletes and coaches within the football program. And it's a program that is attempting to raise money to help the Clark County School District here in Athens purchase additional Wi-Fi hotspots for some of the students in the county who don't have internet access at home. This is very personal for me because I work directly with a lot of these kids, and I can tell you this is a serious need right now as Clark County is going exclusively with an online learning model for at least the first nine weeks of the fall semester, if not for the entire semester, maybe even longer, who knows. And a lot of the kids in the district are in a really tough spot right now without Wi-Fi. The school district has just run out of hotspots, and with the budget shortfalls at the state level trickling down to local school districts, there aren't a lot of funds to purchase additional hotspots for those kids who need them. And I look, I guys, I know, I know, money is tight for a lot of people right now with the economic climate surrounding the pandemic. I totally understand that. But if if you can manage to spare a few bucks and are interested in taking action to take steps towards greater equity in our society, I think this is a really worthy cause. And guys, I I can assure you there are some amazing kids that could really use your help right now. The consequences of falling a semester or a year behind in their education could be tragic for a lot of these kids through no fault of their own. So again, if you can possibly spare anything at all, anything, it would make a huge difference. But all right, guys, without any further ado, here is my interview with Seth Emerson. Enjoy. I am extremely excited to welcome in Seth Emerson from The Athletic. You all know him very well from his outstanding work on the Georgia Beat. But earlier this week, he has also published a truly fantastic new book 
on the resurgence of the Georgia football program under Kirby Smart, entitled Attack the Day, Kirby Smart in Georgia's Return to Glory. Seth, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you guys for having me and letting me hawk my book here. Absolutely. It's completely our pleasure. I really appreciate it. And there's a ton I want to talk to you about today. I know we don't have a ton of time, but I want to make, I'm trying to get as much as we can in here. But I want to start with your new book. And I just have to say this at the outset. I am a huge sports guy. That's, that's kind of what I live and breathe. But oddly, it's really weird. I've never really gotten into many nonfiction sports books. And I think that's because the ones I've read were, I don't know, kind of always bland and, and kind of really delivered on what they promised. But Seth, I got to say, man, your book was a game changer for me. It's it's really well written. It's incredibly insightful. It's got a ton of inside information. I know every Georgia fan is going to love to to find out. It really just exceeded every expectation I had for it. So I honestly could not put it down. It was one of those kind of books for me. I I found myself reading it in bed at 3 a.m. last Saturday night when I actually had to get up early for tennis lessons at like 7 o'clock in the morning. So for a diehard Georgia guy like me, it it really is. It's that good. So I just wanted to say that. And I guess the first actual question I have for you is knowing that this is your first foray into writing books – what made you decide this was the book? Why did you want to write this particular book? Right. Well, because it wasn't my idea. Okay. Um, Triumph Books, who they're a great publishing firm. They've been just very professional the whole way. Um, Very helpful. They're a publishing company in Chicago that specializes in sports nonfiction. And they came to me after the 2017 season and the, talk about writing a book about what Kirby Smart has done at Georgia. And long story short, it's coming out now because of just timing. It's not like in newspaper, internet world, where you can just write something and have it come out tomorrow. And there's a long process. There's an editing process. The pictures do not just appear on the cover of the book. You know, you've got to do a bunch of things. So they came to me and, and I was interested in it. And it's not the first time that I've, you know, had an opportunity to write a book, frankly, but they've been more of the kind of cookie cutter, listicle kind of variety that wasn't like up my alley. Um, and, sure. and, but this one, I thought about it and I said, well, I'd like to do this. I'd like to do this differently. And, and by differently, I'm sure many other people have done it this way, but just kind of do it my way, which is I, wasn't going to just write a book that was based on my, you know, memories of covering this program over the last 10 years is not going to be based on just me going down to my office in my basement and writing, you know, off the top of my head or rewriting my old game stories or features or whatever. I was going to do original reporting for it. And um, luckily I ran across some people or I knew some people uh, through my time on the beat who had left the program, so they were more free to talk, and they were very willing to cooperate. Jeb Blazevich and, and Davin Bellamy in particular were very eager. Jonathan Ledbetter, Aaron Davis, um, and then uh, Shane Beamer, former assistant coach, was very generous with his time and, and helpful. Kevin Butler, other people I know around the program, and then some people that I talked to off the record that provided material and, and stuff that as a beat writer you you pick up and you know there's a lot of stuff that you know on a day-to-day basis that doesn't quite have a excuse to put it in a story that goes in the book. So there's a lot that goes in the book. And I, I guess you know this from reading it. P- 
people who are looking for these salacious details, clickbait material, whatever, particularly like about the 2015 season when people think that, you know, there were crazy rumors. You know, bomb, yeah, there were bombs going off behind the scenes and everything. Yeah. That's that's never what I've done. I write the truth as best I know it. It would be great if there were literally bombs going off and, and, stuff <laughs> and the rumors were true, but I write yeah, what course. I know and I write what people tell me. And and so I, I, I hope that that's the takeaway for people is that this is the account, the best I can do it and the most accurate I can do it of Georgia football since Kirby Smart took over and, and the circumstances that led to him taking over. Yeah, all of that definitely came through. And and all the, the people that did go on the record, especially the players, it was fascinating to kind of get their perspective on things. So they were the guys that were right there in the moment. And, and to get their take on that, that really was just fantastic for me to read. Again, as a guy who, who kind of lives and breathes this stuff. Is this a process that you would ever want to go through again? Yeah, I, it gave me the bug. Um, it okay. gave me I, – I, I ran into Mark Schleyball, who's done some books, and I told him yeah. – uh, this was about six or eight months ago after I'd basically turned the book in. And I said, yeah, this was fun. Uh, I enjoyed doing it. The difference, though, was that it was a little bit easier because I was writing about my beat. I was writing about my job. Mm -hmm. um, it would be different if you said that, you know, if you gave me a book deal to go write about something off the Georgia beat, because then I would truly have to be spending extra time uh doing it although i i was doing i was spending extra time to write this book i i took the time to go interview davin bellamy and jeff blazevich and uh chuck dowdle and lauren smith and people like that and some other people in person um i took time to have long conversations with shane beamer and jonathan ledbetter and davis some other people in the book um my my wife gave me sunday mornings to just go down to the office and write and then to finish the project this is probably delving a little bit into too much information, you know, you know this and everything territory, but to finish the project, my wife said, you are going away for three days and three nights and finishing this book. And that's what <laughs> I did. I, I went to an airport hotel, the most drab, like, you know, I no know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. No <laughs> temptation to go anywhere and be distracted. Um, at a hotel near the, near Hartsfield airport, and and I just finished the book, and so it, it. But it was easier to do that when I was writing about Georgia football. So I. I yeah. But you know what? If they came to me, if if there, another idea comes to me, and I, I think everyone has a book idea, um, I'd be excited to do it. Well, you're off to a great start, my friend. There's no doubt about that. And I don't want to spoil anything for our listeners. I really don't because I want them to pick the book up and read it because it really is awesome. But there are a few things in the book I, I do want to ask you about real quickly. Now, chapter two, early on in the book, it's about the 2015 season and the end of the market area. Right. kind of alluded to that. And you're right. There weren't the salacious details. And that's really what wasn't what I was looking for. But this is the chapter that really hooked me because there were so many rumors, so much innuendo that, that we did hear throughout, throughout that very tumultuous season. And we didn't know what was true, what wasn't. So to read that chapter and for you to kind of just set the record straight there uh, as you know it and get the real story behind the personalities and kind of exactly how things did go down behind the scenes, that was enthralling for me. And in that chapter, you allude to something that, that I've kind of personally believed since, since Mark Rick was fired. So I was kind of interested to read that in your book. And that's the idea that losing Mike Bobo to Colorado State after the 2014 season, yeah. that was kind of ultimately the undoing of Mark Rick. Why do you believe that to be the case? Because he was kind of the go-between. He was the guy 
who behind the scenes could finesse things. Um, I remember one time it was um, it was in the off season after Pruitt had just been hired, and we were at one of those functions. I believe it was probably like Colquitt or Moultrie, maybe it was somewhere in South Georgia. And Bobo was there to speak, and I was there to talk to him. And and he was he went off, and he was off on the phone, and he was clearly talking about recruiting. And he comes back, and he's like, "Yeah, that was Pruitt. We were talking. You know, we were they were they were making plans. They were coordinating." Right. And they both loved to recruit, as did Will Friend and John Lilly and Brian McClendon and people on that staff. And you know, Pruitt had a hard edge personality. There were definitely rough edges, and 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 he and Rick didn't end up on the same page you know they i think that's evident from mark rick kind of no commenting about pruitt yeah no doubt years. yeah um but bobo was able to work that you know bobo may not have been a successful head coach at colorado state but he was a really good manager behind the scenes of people at georgia and he he knew everybody he, he knew how to handle all these factions that we're kind of developing the Alabama faction because when Pruitt came, he started bringing a lot of Alabama people. With him. Um, but Bobo was a Georgia guy who Bobo was a Georgia guy like Kirby Smart, who thought that the Nick Saban Alabama way was the way to go, that that was the model. And Mark Richt was kind of getting there, but he was getting there slowly. And Bobo was able to help finesse that. Whereas Pruitt wanted to go like from zero to 60, getting to the Alabama model. Yeah. So when Bobo leaves with Will Smith, who was Pruitt's best friend, the guy who basically got him on the staff, it became the Alabama faction, the Pruitt faction, and the, the kind of leftovers. And there were a lot of people who were just kind of keeping their head down, um, trying to avoid it, like John Lilly and uh, Brian McLennan in particular were people who were trying to navigate both worlds um and and 2015 became a you know it became what it was but there are also i'm aware a lot of rumors about things that were happening between the coaches and you know bellamy and blazevich ledbetter davis they they don't confirm those rumors but they they told me what they knew to be true and they said yeah oh yeah there was friction we could tell we were i start out that chapter with blazevich talking about how they didn't know whether they were going to practice some days like how can we practice when the coaches are at each other's throats but what kind of gets lost in it is that those coaches were able to put it together and hold practices and that team ended up going 10 and 3 um now obviously october was a disaster and yeah, was no kidding the downfall of mark rick but um there, that there was, yeah there were there was still something that came out of that year uh that but what mainly came out of that year was Kirby Smart ended up being the coach. And that's kind of where I want to take this next question. So I guess kind of sticking with Mark Rick for a second, but also bringing Kirby Smart into it, because this is about Kirby Smart and kind of leading that resurgence of the Georgia program. You've been covering Georgia for a while now. Uh, you were around for, for both the Mark Rick era, at least good portions of that, and now the, the Kirby Smart reign. And both guys, right. uh, uh, Rick had his, he certainly had a high level of success, especially early on. Kirby, we know the kind of success he's experienced early in his tenure. And, but I think Kirby has taken the program to maybe heights that Rick never quite attained. He got close early, but never quite got there. And I know there's more than just one thing at play. It's never just that simple as one thing. But in your opinion, right. what is the biggest difference between Mark Rick's Georgia program and Kirby Smart's Georgia program that's kind of resulted in this elevation of the program under Kirby Smart? 
I, I think that with Kirby Smart, there is just always a sense of moving forward and trying to be cutting edge. And when the offense was struggling in 2019 and the whole man ball thing and, you know, Kirby Smart needs to modernize the offense and everything. And when people were asking me, like, why is why do you think Kirby's going to change? Why do you think Kirby's going to do something about this offense? Why is he going to change his philosophy? What, what, what evidence is there that he's going to do that? And I said, I refuse to believe that someone who is as dynamic as Kirby Smart is in everything else is not going to be dynamic about this thing, about the offense. And he didn't get up there, and he still hasn't gotten up there and said, we're doing this on offense, and had this big, like, come to Jesus speech about we're modernizing the offense. We're going to the air raid, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Cause they're not going to the air raid, but he just did it. He just went out and hired Todd Munkin knowing that that would probably result in James Coley leaving, which it did. And, and that's how he's operated the whole way. There, there's been some moments where he kind of made statements like literal verbal statements, but most of the time he just does it. And I, I just, I think he's very dynamic and, you know, Mark Richt was very, um, pragmatic, you know, he was, he was, uh, he was what, but his approach wasn't wrong. Mark Rick's approach worked for the better part of 15 years. It just stagnated and it ended up not being what Georgia needed to get to the next level, but his approach, the pragmatic approach, that stoic, even keel approach on the sideline and every day did work. But when Kirby got there, they needed to take the next step. And, and Kirby has provided that next step through being dynamic in recruiting mainly, but also dynamic in raising money for facilities and just having a vision for where he wanted to take this program and, and a vision for, you know, the, the indoor facility was already being built when he got here and the Stanford Stadium expansion and the recruiting area and everything was already going to happen when he got here. But Kirby was already thinking ahead to, we need a better weight room. We need to change our, you know, to, to build a better complex. I drove by the bus mirror today and you see it going up. That's Kirby's vision. And you know, he's thinking about the next thing after that. And, and so there's, there's that vision thing that I think that, that Kirby has looking far down the road that, that not a lot of coaches have. Yeah, I think that's that's a great way to put it. Uh, absolutely. And I, I do want to get to a few questions about the 2020 season before we run out of time here, obviously Kirby Smart, he has taken, as we were just talking about, he's taken the program to, I mean, really the very precipice of a national championship. Uh, he, he's gotten over just about every other hump out there, but the program still does have that one final hurdle to clear, hopefully sometime soon. So as someone who has covered every year of his tenure, what do you think it is that's kind of held Georgia back from taking that very last step and finally winning a national title? I, I think you, you – as close as they got in 2017, the evidence is there that he can do it as a coach, unless you believe that the assistant coaches that have left the program since then are, you know, are, are irreplaceable and that they were the reason. Um, and I think they were good coaches, Mel Tucker, Jim Chaney, Shane Beamer, guys like that, Sam Pittman. But Kirby has also shown that he's dynamic enough to replace them. I mean, Sam Pittman left and you thought that that might be a, debilitating loss and we'll see we'll see we can't we don't know for sure yeah you know yeah we we we, we don't we don't know yet but he went out and immediately replaced him with matt luke who had just been an old you know head coach in the sec 
every time he's had a chance to make a hire, it seems like he's done well. Uh, you know, I mean, the Todd Munkin hire was, you know, was pulling that out. You know, and so and Dan Lanning, on the other hand, I mean, there's 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 one thing hiring established coaches like Todd Munkin and Matt Luke, but what about seeing something in Dan Lanning? And he he lucked into I get into this in the book. He lucked mm-hmm. into maybe his two best hires were his second choices. Scott Sinclair, which really emerged for me talking to people for this book especially players, Scott Sinclair was kind of the secret juice to this program for a couple years. And in the same way that Scott Cochran was the secret juice for Nick Saban all those years, but Scott Sinclair was the second choice. Kirby first wanted Scott Cochran and he thought he was going to get him. He got him four years later for a different job. But at the time Saban convinced him to come back. So he turned to Scott Sinclair, who he didn't know, who wasn't part of the Nick Saban coaching tree, but, he was recommended by George O'Leary and and interviewed him and liked him. Um, Shane Beamer was also a like mutual friend who helped that happen, as, as Shane talks about in the book. Um, and then Del McGee, Del McGee, who, who like Scott Sinclair is one of the holdovers still with the program, was the second choice. People forget that Thomas Brown was being retained, but then Thomas Brown changed his mind when Mark Richt offered him a little bit more money, go to Miami. And he decided he wanted to be loyal to Mark Richt, and so he went down there. And so Kirby turned around and hired Del McGee, and he's been a recruiting monster and a really good assistant coach. So sometimes it takes a little bit of luck, but it always seems like Kirby has adjusted. So to get back to your original question, it just seems like, I mean, look, can you guarantee a, a national championship going into the season? I mean, it's hard to do that. You, you want yeah, to be in the conversation. You want you want to be in the in the playoff, and Georgia looks set up with the way they've recruited, and with the evidence of of being able to coach well. You know the the on field results are there. The evidence is that right now Georgia's going to be in that conversation every year, and it's just a matter of breaking through at some point. Yeah, I, that's kind of where I am right now. I agree with you. And okay, so I guess kind of speaking to that, this is going to have a big impact on what Georgia potentially does this year. And I hate to take it here because I'm sure you're very tired of talking about it at this point over the past 24 hours or so now. But earlier in the week, I was all set to ask you about like how serious the quarterback battle between Jamie Newman and JT Daniels really was. But obviously, yesterday's news kind of rendered that question irrelevant. So let me ask you this instead. How does Jamie Newman's decision to opt out of the 2020 season, how does that impact Georgia's championship aspirations this year? It's it's hard to say. It, it doesn't help. That's for sure. I mean, we, we might look back and say that it ended up somehow being a blessing in disguise of JT Daniels or Dwan Mathis ends up being really good. And that yeah. we can say that there was not a distraction. There wasn't a from fields kind of debate. Um, although I really don't think that that was a divided locker room in 2018. It was as evidenced by the fact that like, you know, Justin Fields is comfortable enough to come back to Georgia for practices. It's just kind of he understood that was the decision. Yeah, but, absolutely. Um, but you know, I mean, maybe it ends up that JT Daniels is a better fit for Munkin's offense and that he that this just ends up working out better. But I, I don't, I don't buy that. And I don't, I, I think it's some quick revisionist history based on sources I've talked to to say that Jamie Newman wasn't going to win the starting job. I think he was. 
he was going to be the starter. I felt that all along. I think the last odds I put on it, like when we thought he was still going to be on the team, um, I think Monday I might have written that I give him about a 70% chance of being the starter. 70% is a lot. Um, yeah. I think what, and I think Newman knew that too. The issue was, did Newman know he would stay the starter? Because he didn't have any years left. He couldn't, if he lost the job to JT Daniels, he couldn't transfer somewhere else and play again. Now, I guess he could have with the new COVID rules, but realistically, I mean, he's 22 years old, fifth-year senior. Yeah, he wants to get on, yeah. 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 So I I don't know that it was the entire reason, but I think it figured into it that he said, look, if, if I go into this season and bet on myself, I could end up being a first-round pick. On the other hand, if I lose the job to JT Daniels, I'm going to be an undrafted free agent. And if I opt out now, I've got the Wake Forest tape to lean on and still be, you know, third, fourth, fifth round pick maybe, or try to play my way up in the combine and workouts and whatever. I don't know if that was the smart thinking, but I think that was probably, that probably at least did enter into his thinking. Yeah, I'm with you there. I, I, as far as I'm concerned, it just seemed like a very calculated risk assessment that he made, and he made the decision he felt was best for his financial future. And so I can't begrudge him for that. I hope it, I really hope it works out for him. But uh, obviously kind of t- caught us all off guard there yesterday. But you mentioned So the focus now is definitely shifted to JT Daniels and Dewan Mathis. And Dewan Mathis is a guy who's really created a lot of buzz over the past couple weeks. Obviously, yesterday it really kind of hit a new height. But like how, as a guy who covers the program, I know your your, your time at practice is, is curtailed. I'm not sure you guys have any viewing period right now. With uh, nobody in college football is watching a practice right now. Wow. So as uh, without seeing anything, based on I guess just what you're hearing, who you're talking to, how serious is the competition right now between Daniels and Mathis? Um, it's hard to say because this just happened. Where they just yeah. finished today, practice two, as we're recording this. Thursday night of life without Jamie Newman. Um, but I would imagine that there's Kirby smart wants competition. Now they have to get JT Daniels ready. They have to give him as many reps, but they have to give Dewan Mathis reps too, in case he ends up needing to be the guy. And by the way, don't forget about Stetson Bennett. Um, like if, if JT Daniels doesn't get cleared and Dewan Mathis doesn't end up being as good these last this last stretch of preseason scrimmages and practices they might look over at Stetson Bennett and say you know what he may not impress coming off the bus but dude is a veteran people like him and he's been around here a while and and let's roll with him so they're they're getting I would suspect all three guys ready Kirby said after Saturday scrimmage that Bennett was the only one I think Beck also fit into this category, but Bennett was the only one who didn't get any first team reps because they know what he can do. Um, I think with the Newman news, you're, you're probably, this is just a guess, but you're probably going to see like 50% of the first team snaps going to, uh, to, to Daniels and Mathis getting like 30% and the rest going to the Stetson Bennett, just in case. Yeah, and like you kind of were alluding to earlier with Kirby Smart kind of just being forward-looking, I if there's anything we know about him, I, I fully expect him to be prepared. I, I, we don't know how it will turn out, but he's going to have these guys ready 
and somebody will try it out there, I guess, for week one. Um, but all right, Seth, I'm going to get you out of here on this one, man. Again, I, I, I well, I don't want. I'm not going to actually make a prediction here because I, I don't want to put you on the spot or anything like that. But I do want to have like maybe just a little bit of fun here and ask you to just finish this sentence for me. So, yeah. Georgia wins the 2020 national championship if. Uh, if I mean, it, it revolves around the offense, doesn't it? Because I yeah. just don't see much evidence this defense could slip. I mean, it could be another 2012 situation, but. Um, Georgia wins the national championship if Todd Munkin is the real deal because everything flows from that. Well, Todd Munkin's the real deal. So let me rephrase that because everything in his resume says he's the real deal. Um, if Todd Munkin runs, if Todd Munkin has as much success as he did at Oklahoma state, the last time he was in a similar job and someone asked him, uh, during his availability with us last week, whether that was analogous, his time at Oklahoma State. And he, he said yes. Like, he didn't say, like, oh, that was eight years ago, college football has changed. He said, that's analogous. So it, it, everything flows from there. If Tom Munkin's able to run this offense the way he wants and, you know, it, the, the players catch up to it pretty quick, then that means JT Daniels or whoever is the quarterback – slings it around and has a good year and doesn't commit many turnovers. And that means Amir White and James Cook have a big year running the ball and that the offensive line, the slimmed down offensive line under Matt Luke moves the ball pretty well. Um, and that means good things from the offense. And I mean, this is Georgia. We, uh, you, you, one thing gets up and it, it, it seems like something else, you know, another wheel gets loose and comes off sometimes, but it always, um, you're exactly right. I guess it, we, we yeah. can't take the defense for granted. You never know with kicker, you know, I mean, with Jared Zirkle not being around, you've got a new special teams coordinator who's never done that job before. So special teams is something to watch too. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it all flows from, from the offense. And you heard it here, guys, about the offense. I agree. So, all right, that's Seth Emerson from The Athletic. If you don't already subscribe to The Athletic to read his work, you are missing out. So I encourage you to jump on that before the Georgia football season officially begins. And his fantastic new book, Attack the Day, Kirby Smart and Georgia's Return to Glory, is out now. And, guys, it really is. It's a must-read for any serious Georgia fan. Seth, I, again, really appreciate you taking the time to join me on the podcast today. Thank you very much, as I said, for letting me come on and, and hawk my book. That is absolutely our pleasure. You take care, my man, okay? All right. Take care. All right. So that was Seth Emerson, who was kind enough to join us on the podcast today. I really hope you guys enjoyed that interview. And again, I know I said it a couple of times here today, but his book on the resurgence of the Georgia football program under Kirby Smart, it really is great, guys. And I strongly recommend you order a copy today. But now I do have a few leftover questions from last month's mailbag that I want to get to. And look, we, you guys know, we, we, we love all you guys that listen to and support our podcast. So I always feel like answering every last question that gets sent in for the mailbag episodes, I feel like that's an important thing to do to show our appreciation for you guys. So I want to make sure to do that today. And the first question is one, actually, that I was mortified that I missed. Josh, a, a great friend of the show, we love you, Josh who has actually served as a guest host multiple times in the past and, and actually killed it, by the way. He sent in a question early in August, and when I was going back and pulling out all the questions from my Twitter feed for the mailbag last week, 
I just somehow missed his question, so totally my bad on that. No excuses there, just missed it. But Josh asked, who do you expect to have a bigger or more impactful season? Nolan Smith or Jermaine Johnson? And Josh, man, this is a tough question, buddy. This is a really tough one for me because I'm so high on both of these guys. I know this is not like the answer anyone wants to hear, but honestly, I think it could be either one of them or maybe even both of them that breaks out this year. But if you're making me pick one here, I'm, I'm going to do my best since I was late getting to your question. I'm going to do my best to, to pick one of these guys, which is really tough for me because I love both of them. But I'm going to go with Jermaine Johnson right now. And I know that's crazy. I know because Noel Smith, here, here he sits as a former number one overall recruit who's so incredibly talented in his own right. And again, it would not shock me at all if he broke out this year. But if I had to pick one as we sit here right now on September 3rd, I'm going to go with Jermaine Johnson. Because from all accounts, everything that I've heard throughout the summer, throughout the offseason, this whole pandemic situation, everything I've heard is that he's had an amazing offseason. Like it's pointing to him having just this breakout year. You can tell, like I mentioned this a couple weeks ago on, on one of the episodes. If you guys, I'm sure a lot of you saw this, but if you happen to catch the, the, the image of him on Dan Lanning's Twitter, it was all the outside linebackers, that's Dan Lanning's position and he had them over for uh, for dinner, for a barbecue, something like that. And he took a, a group photo. And Jermaine Johnson was there without a shirt on. And you can probably scroll through Dan Lang's Twitter account and, and find that somewhere. Probably won't be too difficult if you haven't seen it. And, dude, like, that caught my eye. Because Jermaine Johnson looks like a different dude. He was he was in good shape last year, but he's like he's you know, he's one of those guys 6'5 was kind of lanky, didn't look like he had completely filled out. Ah, that doesn't seem to be the case this year based on that one image. Look like he is a guy that certainly was not hiding in his closet throughout this coronavirus pandemic. He was finding a way to get to work and get it done and his body looks like like he's a different person. I mean, he is jacked up, thick, bulky. Now, I mean, he looks the part right now. Now, looking the part is one thing. You got go, you have to go there and do it on the field. But we already know what kind of athleticism that this guy has. So I'm just hearing more buzz around him right now. And it's not that I haven't heard good things about Nolan. Like I've never heard a bad thing about Nolan Smith in my entire life. Whether it's high school during his recruitment. Now that he's been here on campus for a year and a half now, this is a guy that, I, I mean, on and off the field, I've heard nothing but glowing things about Nolan Smith. And of course, when you watch his tape, you see the kind of athlete, the kind of player this guy is in the, in the ceiling that he has. I would just say, I think right now, maybe Jermaine Johnson, I think maybe Nolan has a higher overall ceiling, but I think Johnson is closer to reaching his ceiling right now. You got to remember, he's a couple years older than Nolan Smith right now, going into his senior season. Nolan's going into his sophomore season. Uh, I'm really excited about Nolan's future, but the fact that Johnson's a little bit more experienced, you know, he's got some, I, I know Juco is not the SEC, but it's more than high school in, in almost all cases. So the fact that he's a little bit more experienced at the college level, a little bit more physically developed right now, I think that's something that Nolan does need to continue to work on is just him, himself kind of filling out and continue to add strength and uh, in, in bulk to that frame. I think they're comparable from an athletic standpoint, but because of the, the slight experience edge and the fact that I think he just looks more physically developed right now, 
I'm going to go with Jermaine Johnson being the guy at outside linebacker that kind of bust onto the scene this year if, you, if you're picking between Nolan and Jermaine. And of course, you can't forget about Aziz. We all know how good Aziz Ojolari is. Adam Anderson's going to have a role in this team. MJ Sherman's a true freshman coming out that I'm very high on. I think he's going to have a big-time role in this team. Maybe not so much this year, but in the future, this guy is going to be the next guy in line. So we are stacked at that outside linebacker position. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be really fun to see how the coaches find a way to get all these guys on the field and, and use their skill sets. So great question, Josh, and I hope, my friend, that sufficiently answers your question. But all right, next up here, we got a, a question from Justin, and we've touched on this a little bit, but I want to make sure I, I, I get Justin's question in here. He asked, what are your thoughts on how Dominic Blaylock re-tearing his ACL affects our gameplay on offense this year and our wide receiver lineup? Look, this is this was terrible news a couple weeks ago. I, it, it was heartbreaking, honestly, because Blaylock is one of those guys who's just a fantastic young man on and off the field. We know what kind of player he is. He's a great guy out the field, works incredibly hard, kind of has that a little bit of that Nick Chubb work ethic behind the scenes. You, you heard all all throughout the offseason about how great he was working, and uh, when Kirby got up for his his opening press conference of fall camp, you know, he was of course asked about Dominic and. And he just had glowing things to say about how hard he's worked behind the scenes. And even said it after he tore his ACL. It's just it's it's just tough, man. It's tough to see a guy go down like that after he's worked so hard to get back and look like he was on the right path. But saying that, I don't know how it affects the play of our offense this year. Because honestly, I wasn't really counting on him to be a major impact this year. I think... Not that he wasn't talented, but when you're coming back from the ACL like that, and, this is, and remember, this guy tore his ACL the first week of December in the SEC Championship game. This is not something that happened in September or October. He's not that far removed. I mean, he's what, about eight, a little eight and a half, almost nine months now removed from that ACL tear. So guys are coming back obviously quicker than they ever have, but it's still, you know, very early in the, in the process of him coming back. He's, he's done the rehab. He's been, he was running, but it's, you know, we've seen, we saw with Nick Chubb. The first year back, you're not ex- usually, usually not necessarily the same k- kind of athlete. You're not the same guy. You don't have the same burst, the same change of direction. That comes with time, but right away, you're usually not the same guy you were right off the bat. So I wasn't necessarily counting on him this year to be a major impact player for us. I was considering anything we got from him to be a luxury. So I don't think it's a major, major blow for the offense this year. Now, we need to get this guy back in the future, and I hope to God he comes back, and I'm sure he will. The way this guy works and, and the kind of kind of guy he is behind the scenes and just the, the determination, the work ethic, I, I have full faith in Dominic Playlock. I'm not a doctor, but I think this guy can get it done. So I'm wishing him the absolute best. But as far as our wide receiver lineup, I, th- I just think it, it is one less guy competing for a spot in the slot. Now, Dom can play outside, but I think he's more of a natural slot receiver. So maybe that opens up some some room for a guy like Jermaine Burton, maybe Lad McConkey. Kiaris Jackson, obviously, has, has had a really good offseason, has a has had a really good first part of fall camp. for a lot of great things about him. So I guess it's just one less body there, one less person to contend for snaps there in the slot. So I don't necessarily, again, I know, I know it sounds crazy. He's a talented kid. I just wasn't really expecting a lot from him this year coming off the ACL injury that happened in early December of last year. So good question, but uh, hopefully he gets back as soon as he possibly can. I wish him the absolute best. All right, next up here, we got a question from our man Cliff, and Cliff asks, how would the NCAA decision to grant everyone an extra year of eligibility affect the quarterback room for Georgia? I would think it helps Dewan Mathis and Carson Beck the most, but it gives JT Daniels three more years of eligibility too, which is interesting. Uh, this is, it's a great question, Cliff. We talked uh, we talked about this extra year of eligibility 
on the mailbag last last week, but we didn't talk about the specific situation with the quarterbacks. And it's a really good question. It's a good point. I would say in a perfect world, it would mean each one of those guys, Dwan Mathis, Carson Beck, JT Daniels, would stay an extra year, right? Like you get an extra year, so just stay an extra year. But in Daniels' case, and in, in fairness, Cliff asked this question before the Jamie Newman news came down. So we, we've got some more information to work with here. But in, in JT Daniels' case, if he is who I think he is, let's say he wins the job this year, now that he's he's got one less guy to compete against and a guy that a lot of people were kind of considering the presumptive starter to, to open the season, if he is who I think he is and he's as good as I think he is and he gets cleared to play and he plays like the guy we need him to be, then I don't think the extra year of eligibility is going to matter. I think there's a good chance he might jump and go to the NFL after this year. I, w- I would have said after 2021 if Newman would have won the job this year, but there's a good chance. Now, obviously, he's got to compete with with Mathis and Beck, and Mathis is really coming on strong right now. But if he wins the job this year, there's a really good chance. This will be his third year out of high school that he just goes ahead and jumps the NFL right now. And if, Again, if he has the kind of season that I, that I think he's capable of, then I think there's a really good chance he goes ahead and makes that jump to the NFL. I don't know if he would use it if he's the guy that we think he is. Now, if he plays this year and you know he's still rusty from the ACL, you know didn't really get to play at all last year except for the first half of the first game, then you know maybe he he comes back and for 2021. But I, I just don't really see a scenario unless he has another major injury where he stays a fifth year. I just don't see that. I don't see that for Mathis or Beck either. It's possible, but again, if those guys are, are the guys that we think they are and they are as good as we need them to be in order to be a championship contender in the coming years, I don't think they stick around for a fifth year. I think they're gone. I just don't think they're going to use the extra year eligibility. Again, that would be awesome in a perfect world, but that's just not how big-time NFL prospects view things, uh, most of the time at least. There's always the, the unicorn here and there. There's a Nick Chubb and Sonny Michelle come back for their senior year, but that doesn't happen very often. But uh, good question, though. All right, last question today is from Mason. And Mason asks, what is the outlook for our special teams this year? Who do you think are the favorites to be the place kicker and return kicks and punts this season? This is an awesome question. I'm really glad you asked this, Mason. We talked about this a little bit earlier this week when we did our biggest questions of the year. And the kicking game was my biggest question. Not so much the return game, but just the kicking and punting. Right now, Jake Camarda is almost certainly going to be our punter. The bigger question is, who's going to be the kicker, the place kicker? Is it going to be true freshman Jared Zirkle from Texas? Or is it going to be Jake Camarda? Because Camarda is certainly a guy that can do both. He did both in high school. Honestly, I've said this before. I thought he was a better kicker coming out of high school than he was a punter. Zirkle has a big leg, but he's a true freshman. And that concerns me when you have a championship caliber team pretty much everywhere else on the roster, but you have a true freshman kicker. I mean, that truly can be the difference between winning a national championship and not winning a national championship, winning an SEC title and not winning an SEC title. The margin between these top teams, it's extraordinarily thin between the Georgias and Alabamas and the Clemsons of the world. That margin is very thin. So a freshman kicker who isn't accustomed to playing in those big time moments on that big stage, that could be a serious issue for us. Now, certainly there are guys that come in and do it right away. And I do think, as, as we mentioned earlier in the week on the, the Biggest Questions episode, the fact that we're not going to have full houses most of this year, I think that certainly does work in our favor in that one regard. But Jake Camarda's got a really big leg too. Again, I thought he was really good at kicking uh, the ball out of high school. And look, yeah, he he was inconsistent last year, but he's gotten old. He's been inconsistent his first years, but he's gotten a little bit older now. Hopefully, with all that experience, he kind of straightens out some of those consistency issues. 
from my understanding, the coaches really don't want Kamara to have to do both. But if he's the best kicker and the best punter, they'll let him do both. But they're giving Zirkle every chance to be that guy. And then as our kick returners and punt returners, uh, from what I was told at the scrimmage last week, that first fall scrimmage, Tyreek Stevenson and Kiaris Jackson were the main two back there fielding punts. And that doesn't necessarily surprise me. Kiaris is a guy that did a little bit of that last year. I thought he would be a guy that would get an opportunity back there. Tyreek Stevens is a guy that's got some great athleticism, really good speed, fluid athlete. So that doesn't necessarily surprise me there. And I would expect James Cook to be the first guy or certainly one of the primary guys to get a look as our kick returner. You can see Kiaris Jackson back there as well. Maybe even Zamir White. I don't know. We'll see how that works out. I think Cook's the guy that I would give the first look to and kind of see how he responds to that. But great question there. And that wraps everything up today, guys. So I really appreciate you tuning in and listening to the show today. And I really hope you guys enjoyed the Seth Emerson interview. It's a lot of fun to be able to talk to Seth. He's got great insight into what's going on behind the program. He really is the best in the business on the Georgia beat. The book is awesome. Go buy it if you haven't already. It's a great gift. Also, as we're, I mean, it's hard to believe, but Christmas is just around the corner. So if you're looking for early Christmas gifts for your loved ones, that would certainly be a great choice if they are of the Georgia Bulldog variety. And before I forget, I do also want to mention this real quick. We are running our bold predictions episode next week. We do this each and every offseason right before the start of the season. Obviously, we've had to push it back a little further this year than we normally do. But if you're new to the show, basically what we do is we, we open things up. and Just, just kind of like a mailbag episode, we are going to ask you guys to send us any bold predictions you have for the 2020 season. Of course, they can be Georgia football related. I'm sure a lot of you guys would go that direction. It can be team related. It can be individual related. It can also be anything in college football. It can be other conferences, other teams within the division, within the SEC. Whatever bold prediction you have for the 2020 season, send it to us on Twitter or you can email it to us as well. You can hit us up on Twitter at glory underscore UGA. You can email us at podcast at gmail.com. And once we get all those bold predictions in from you guys, we will discuss each one of those on the show next week and kind of discuss how realistic, obviously they're bold by by their very nature, but we will discuss and debate just how close to reality some of those bold predictions might end up being. So that's always a lot of fun to do, guys. So send us any predictions you might have about the 2020 season, and we'll make sure to cover those next week. We'll also be doing... Kentucky and Florida. They are up next with our Scouting the Enemy series. So we'll have two of those episodes for you next week. So look forward to that as well. Curse will also be back next week. So a lot of good stuff for you guys coming up here. We're just three short weeks away from the start of the SEC season. It's hard to believe, man, but God, let's just get there. So thanks again for listening, guys. I'm Tyler, and as always, go dogs. <laughs>